2: The Hulu miniseries about the early days of the opioid epidemic started streaming on Wednesday, October 13th, the same day the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released new figures showing that the United States is still in the throes of a wave of death and suffering from opioid abuse. Based on the best-selling book by Beth Macy, the eight-episode series stars Michael Keaton, Caitlin Deaver, Rosario Dawson, Peter Sarsgaard, John Hugenacher, and Michael Stuhlbarg, and tells the story from multiple perspectives. From the owners and employees of Purdue Pharma, maker of the blockbuster OxyContin opioid, to the assistant U.S. attorneys and DEA agents trying to address the epidemic and its fallout, to the doctors and victims in communities beset by suffering and crime. Since 1999, more than 900,000 people in America have died from a drug overdose, and the overwhelming majority of those deaths were caused by opioids. It's a testament to its storytelling that this series can take such a sprawling, tragic story and humanize it at the same time it depicts a public health crisis prompted by criminal manipulation, incompetence, and a drive for the truth and justice. It is almost overwhelming to consider that the years depicted in Dope Sick amounted to only the beginning of this slow-rolling epidemic. In 2020, for instance, a record-high 93,000 overdose deaths occurred. And according to the CDC's Wednesday release of preliminary data for the 12-month period ending March 2021, 96,779 individuals died from drug overdoses in that period. That number is a 29.6% increase over the previous 12-month period. For executive producer and series lead Danny Strong, there was plenty of material to work with. The stories that came out speak volumes about how Americans started coming to grips with the problem and how aggressively Purdue pushed back. I spoke with him and Beth Macy, who, in addition to writing the book, is a producer and writer on the series, recently in Washington on their press tour.
3: OxyContin abuse and the danger of the drug was famous by 2000. There have been national news stories about it by 2001, it was really famous. You know, there was a, this morbid joke within Purdue Pharma, which was, you know, on 9-11 at least they got off the news, you know, that they stopped, people stopped talking about, about OxyContin. Right. And yet I was, I was in AmeriCorps
2: in West Virginia in
3: 2000, 2001. So yeah, it was, <laughs> yes. it was famous. And, and yet, and yet doctors can to prescribe it and prescribe it aggressively. And that post 2007, the settlement that we, that we cover in the show, they prescribed it even more aggressively, you know, and it wasn't just Purdue at that point, but it was all the Oxy, all, all these different pharmaceutical companies got into the Oxycontin or not the Oxycontin game, but the painkiller game, um, because, um, the FDA had granted, uh, Purdue a label that said it could be used for extended period of time, which was this green light Uh, to the entire industry that this could be unbelievably lucrative. So, and I just don't know how that could be with how famous it had become in 2000, 2001. So there are certain, do you know? I mean, there are certain mysteries Well, part of it is
0: the decline of regional media, right? So I worked then for the Run-Up Times, and we had one of our very best reporters, Lawrence Hammack, was the very first person to swoop into southwest Virginia and write about OxyContin. And then Richmond Paper did it. Barry Meyer comes down the next year, interviews the same people from New York Times, but that's 2001. Yeah. And um, so it, it really took a long time. Then you have a and recession.
2: I, yeah. news, newsrooms get gutted.
0: Yeah. yeah but I think it starts in rural Maine, it starts in Southwest Virginia, Kentucky, West Virginia. And think about what's happening to the media there. I right. Mean, people just weren't picking up on it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Some familiar figures in US politics make an appearance in this series, including James Comey, the former FBI director who was deputy attorney general during the administration of George W. Bush and for part of the time depicted in Dope Sick. In a key scene early in the series, Comey grills the U.S. attorney and assistant U.S. attorneys who are gathering evidence against Purdue. That sounds like a pretty standard scene for a legal thriller, and Comey's reputation as a straight shooter gives the lead-up some added resonance. Except it's also played for some laughs, because Comey apparently thinks they're investigating Purdue Farms, producer of large volumes of America's chicken habit, not Purdue Pharma, maker of painkillers that killed. Here's Danny Strong on that incident. It, it's kind—it's of, kind of amazing because, like, one of the another one of these books in this this Bloomberg book club was—it's uh, called the Chicken Shit Club—and and this is a, a term that Comey like turned, you know, you know. Came up with when he was a an assistant U.S. attorney or a U.S. attorney in New York, and he was accusing, basically, accusing people on his staff of not taking anything to trial that they couldn't absolutely win. And mm. and and when there, the concern is there, you know, with the the Western District folks, and 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 then they're summoned to him. I was and I and he says, "Chicken." I thought, is he <laughs> is he going to challenge them on this? And then it becomes this weird, absurd moment. And
3: <laughs> it's, it's so strange too. I mean, I've always wondered if. Um if you know, why was he given bad information? I mean, clearly one of Purdue's lawyers, probably Mary Joe White, would be my guess. You know, or it could have been Shapiro. Someone called him and said these guys are out of control. You know, they're pursuing this case. They're they're they're. You know, this is a problematic case. So did they tell him? Did someone intentionally confuse him that it was Frank Purdue? You know, or did he, he just mix it up in his own head? You know, I'm, I'm yeah. so curious what really happened. Because I would have
0: thought he would have been embarrassed by go- have gotten it so wrong. Yeah,
3: but he, you know, and they, and supposedly as soon as they cleared qu- it up, he just said, he just said, okay, pursue your case.
2: Incidentally, the laughs were real in that scene, as Peter Sarsgaard and John Hugenacher, who played assistant U.S. attorneys in the series, told me in a separate interview the the scene with the, the Comey scene, you know, which yeah, <laughs> was we had a little so, trouble doing this. I, I heard, I heard that oh, there was did. some right, uh, the, the giggles, uh, some contagious
1: giggles. Uh, with it's with, not just giggles. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had it where you couldn't actually look at someone in the eyes anymore. <laughs> the problem is, once the cat is out of the bag. Oh, God
2: we all had to get up and leave the room <laughs>
1: you have to get up leave the room kind Set of control alternate aside. delete right come I back and don't interact yeah it was kind of heavy
2: yeah and you know when you when that valve gets turned just a little bit it's like oh my god so much stuff has got to come out um, that you know and that actor uh, who was playing Comey
1: was just like so solid and so focused no he wasn't going anywhere no really. he was, was like was a rock go ahead <laughs> lose it.
2: (laughs) Macy, a former newspaper reporter in Southwest Virginia, saw a new aspect to telling the story that differed from her time in a newsroom and writing her book. Here she is on that process.
0: So Danny, I had to learn a lot from Danny about, you know, how to break down the story, which, you know, he came with this big kind of treatment already written, and he had done so much research in his head. And then when the writer's room assembled, it was like, two people with a ton of experience, w- one person with lived experience who was in recovery, um, Danny and me, and he had like the bones of the story, and then we would just brainstorm. And I would add, like, I would hopefully, I think Danny would say that I my presence deepened because I, had, I had examples that sort of helped him put the flesh on all of his story points.
3: Yeah, she brought an authenticity to the room.
2: Another member of the cast, Will Poulter, plays a young pharmaceutical representative, someone instrumental in getting OxyContin into doctors' hands, vouching for it, and eventually into patients' systems. Poulter discussed with me the preparations he made for this kind of role. For your your character as this pharma rep, as this um, difficult task of being both sympathetic mm. and and a real skeever mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I wonder like I mean and he has this like kind of wide arc I mean he does I think come to grips you know it, it seems mm-hmm. with some of what his part in this very broad multi-year you know saga right um, treachery and incompetence and human vulnerability and loss and tragedy i mean that's a lot for any one person but how did you prepare for that role mm-hmm. did you did you talk to two pharma reps did you just rely on danny and and beth you know for on the, and the writing crew like what was your kind of process for preparing for this this is a tough role right <laughs> to, to prepare for to be kind of a villain and kind of a
1: the voice of the viewer also yeah right right Right? yeah that's it's a it's it's interestingly framed because i i think you're right in the sense that um although i didn't necessarily see it like that going into it i think i realized kind of retrospectively that Uh, Billy was uh, maybe answering or sorry, rather asking some of the some of the questions that the viewers were were having um, as they were uncovering information and they were, um, you know, learning at at the same time as uh, Billy, that what he was engaging in wasn't quite what it originally seemed to be. and you know, ultimately, uh, as we know now, you know, the introduction of oxycotton as a genuine form of non-addictive pain relief is an entirely fraudulent campaign, and it was from the beginning, and it was driven by greed and you know um, the incentives of the the Sackler family and and just who you know were entirely financially motivated. Um, you know, I think what's what's interesting for me from a research perspective is that I was able to lean so heavily on, on Beth's book and Danny's script that I had to do kind of little other work really in the way of research Um, what I did look at is some of the kind of salesmanship and marketing materials that were kind of common at the time um, and some of the kind of like you know like sort of respected works that were out there um, as far as you know, gaining an influence in business, uh, like I read How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that's an interesting one, because written in the 70s, just the sort of book that a farmer rep in the 90s might read, you know, in preparation to work for a company like Purdue. And it's chock full of things that were originally, you know, totally acceptable in the world of business. Now, find a personal angle, you right. know, use their name a lot, bring them small little trifles. Exactly. Um, yeah. And now, we look at that through, you know, a revised lens, and it looks like deception, it looks like emotional manipulation, it looks like bribery, it looks like fraud.
2: Ultimately, what makes Dope work is not a point-by-point exclamation of who did what, when, and how. It does have that, but it's the human element that's depicted here that really makes it work. The suffering, the striving, the look at the tragedy from the ground level— from the eyes of fully fleshed out characters. Here's Sarsgaard and Hoogenacher again. Not to ask you what you think the audience thinks or wants or will respond to, but is is it more helpful you think getting out, like having having a something about as sort of that can be as involved or complicated as is like this movie? Is it is the human element, you know, the suffering that we see in Virginia,
1: is that is that the thing that kind of is really? Affected? That's the number the one thing, right? Out. I mean, we live in a country where, unfortunately, the government has the best interests of, of big corporations in mind over individuals a lot of the time. And in this case, the individuals were maligned. You know, like this person's a drug addict, and they want an to, be, they want to be addicted. Right? A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I it's think not that
2: the drug is addictive; it's right. that it fell into the hands of an addict. Right.
1: That's right, and so right. I think. That if we can just drug shift people? Yeah. (laughs) People kill addicts, kill themselves. Yeah. So just shifting that in whatever way we can is, is what the goal is.
2: It is worth stating again that we are still in the middle of a deadly opioid epidemic. I don't mean to be a bummer, but things are still getting worse. It's unclear how we get out of it. In September, the Sackler family got a sweeping immunity deal from opioid lawsuits linked to Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. In exchange, the Sacklers gave up ownership of Purdue and paid $4.3 billion to settle claims and fight opioid abuse. But the Sacklers still made billions more off of OxyContin, admitted no wrongdoing, and the painkiller genie they let out shows no signs of going back into the bottle. As the CDC announcement on Wednesday showed, thousands of people are still overdosing dying, and suffering. This is something we still have to deal with for years to come. But stories like Dopesick provide us with an understanding of it, from the boardroom to the Justice Department to the rural pain clinics. It's not always a pretty picture, but it is an important one.